Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Michael Holland with us as well. Many of you will know him for the courage to be in the markets uh, as well. Michael, what happens after a bang-up double-digit year? What, what's the history of what happens next? The history, Tom, is, is pretty clear that if you look at the last quarter of a century, there have been six years of performance like we just had in the U.S., 25 to 30%. In over three-quarters of those years, the following year, you had double-digit rates of return. In other words, Newton law of motion, things in motion, stay in motion. That's what's happened. By the way, in the other years, you lost money. So historians uh, would all be millionaires if history simply repeated itself. See, he took <laughs> physics I, at Harvard exactly. and I was eating fig newtons. <laughs> exactly. So, Michael, it's interesting. You know, we hear a lot of folks coming here and they look back at 2019. They had this huge run. But it's interesting. If you take a look at it from the peak of 2018 in right. September, it's maybe it's still a double-digit return. Yeah. But there's no reason to maybe say, oh, my God, I can't possibly follow up a 28% year it's more like a 10 or 11 or 12 percent year relative to Bar the barry ritholtz made barry ritholtz yeah. made it and uh, thanks for listening see i listen exactly <laughs> and we ha we have to give barry, barry credit how do you think about so 2019 it do i need to think about certain sectors that i want to be in do i want to be more aggressive do i want to be defensive how do you think about it after even a double digit year well i think paul when when you whenever including this period we just went through and are going into right now. I think you always have to look for the individual. If you're buying individual companies, you simply have to look at number one management. For example, we talked about Boeing earlier today. Oh, yeah. yep. uh, you have a, a new management there. It probably is a major plus for the company. Um, you look at companies like Microsoft, what they've done versus IBM in the cloud. You go on. A, so then you look at the valuation. So I think it's as simple as fundamentals, the basic blocking and tackling. Um, there are still companies out there that are trading at reasonable prices given their prospects. How do you factor in all these, uh, I guess, exogenous issues that have really whipsawed this market around almost on a daily basis? Let's just take trade, for example. Do you just try to just take the trade out of the discussion and focus again on the fundamentals of the companies? Or do you have to say, gee, I have to think about a stock that's going to weather maybe a prolonged trade disagreement skirmish with China? Yeah, the crazy trade stuff for the past year, Paul, actually provides opportunities if you identify a company you really like, and because uh, someone says we're not going to have a deal with the China the Chinese, uh, and the market goes down, you can you have an opportunity to buy it. I think at, at the end, end of the process, what, what you end up with, with with the trade thing is we're going to get something, the Chinese will get something, yeah. but not very much, and it, it doesn't really matter. Far more important, actually, for me, over the decades and, and bull markets and bear markets, is the Federal Reserve. A year ago, yep. the ugly December we had, the worst since 1931, was caused in large part by the worry about the Fed hiking interest rates. Made no The market said, this is nuts. We may be going into a recession, we don't know, and the Fed is talking about hiking rates. This is crazy, and the market tanked. Now you have opposite day, which is massive amounts of liquidity, probably a record uh, balance sheet for the Federal Reserve at the end of the year. Okay, we're doing we're channeling Wall Street Week uh, uh, this day with Dana Telsey later and Elf and Michael Holland with us as well in honor of Marty Zweig. Don't mm. fight the Fed. Right. How do you right. not fight the Fed forward? 
you don't fight him. Marty, wonderful friend, knew him for years, a brilliant investor, really, really good investor. Uh, there's going to be a crash, the, the famous line in, in uh, right before the, the, the crash of the market. Back. Anyhow, he, he got it right. The Federal Reserve, if they were going to hike a year ago, you wanted to be out of the market. If they can, they they don't have a they don't have a choice. The Fed, Tom, sometimes it's very the play card is pretty easy. Uh, Bill Bell is it easy right now? It's easy right now because for the time being, the Federal Reserve is really concerned about the liquidity in the markets. They looks it looks like they've addressed it through the end of the year, but there was major concern back in. September, They're going to rebuild October, the balance November. sheet and keep yields low into next year. They have so to do you it can for stay a while in Apple and Amazon because of that. They quick answer yes. Okay, I mean, I think it's absolutely extraordinary, uh, Michael, how we look at, as we said earlier, Graham Dodd and Cottle, we've thrown it out the window. So what are we left with? What is the theory of owning companies like Amazon right now, or even an elevated Microsoft? What's the underlying theory that allows you to own them? Uh, you do human stuff, and that is you look at companies where the managements have figured it out. They, they perpetuate themselves, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Microsoft. You go on and on through, through the great companies, and you figure out where they're priced. Okay. Go ahead. No, no, don't. Please continue. No, so, so you, you, that hasn't changed in, in, in any way. I think at the end, at the end of the right. day, you, once, once you find very high quality, right. think professional sports, the, the top athlete, and get it at the right price. You realize that the only reason Holland's here is that he'd only show up if the Bruins beat the Capitals. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the truth. Um, this is important, folks. We've got a couple minutes to go here. And we have with us Paul Sweeney, who's done more to develop security analysis at Bloomberg than anyone, and a guy named Holland who began with Morgan Guarantee and then First Boston, right? Correct. Yeah. This is a few years ago. Yeah. What are CFAs going to do 10 years from now? Or five years from now, where, where, Michael Holland, where is the security analysis five years from now? Paul, well, I think it's it's interesting, Tom. I think the the sell it's not necessarily the sell side, which is one of the historic landing uh, points for the CFAs. Um, it's going to be at the buy side. I think there's taking more research in house on the buy side, but then it's going to be alternative research platforms. For example, Bloomberg Intelligence here, where we have 300 analysts covering 2,000 stocks. It's just a different model kind of reacting to the changes in the sell side. And I think there's going to be other models out there as well. Dana Telsey is a great example, yeah. Tom, for someone who left. The independent boutiques. Yeah, yeah the independent yeah. boutiques. And, but you have to be somebody like a What Dana do you Telsey. read every day, Michael Holland? I mean, you, you know, we used to, I gonna, used to go up the elevator with yeah. Phil Correa at Pioneer, and he had piles of stuff, you know, on the dolly. In, what do you read every his, day? In his 90s, he was still reading yeah. that stuff. Um, I knew him. He was one of my heroes in the business. Yeah. I'm almost as old as he right now. Uh, I actually, this is not a commercial. I, I don't belong to Bloomberg. I don't get paid by Bloomberg. I actually start with Bloomberg in the morning. And the, Paul Sweeney has helped to develop the model of the future, the business model of the future. The model that I grew up with in the business is dead. Uh, the model of the future is what you have at Bloomberg. People who have an objective reason to be right about Then how, do. who decides buy, hold, sell for you if Paul Sweeney doesn't? Oh, well, I have to do that myself. You have to do that. Oh, what a <laughs> shock. What a Excuse surprise. me. It's a surveillance break exclusive. <laughs> Investors buy, hold, sell. <laughs> Michael Holland, thank you so much for joining us here uh, as well. We got through that without him talking I about think we can, can we hold him for another block maybe? I oh, can know. we hold him for another block? Yeah, I'd like to speak about the upcoming presidential election. Oh, oh you great. would, <laughs> would you? Should I would do a disclaimer <laughs> yeah. here before we do the three later? Michael Holland with us, getting us into trouble. 
are thrilled to bring you now uh, an original elf on Wall Street Week. Dana Telsey joins us now with Bear Stearns for years and a hugely successful retail research uh, shop, Telsey Advisory Group. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. Let's just sum up here. How has this holiday season been? I think the holiday season has basically been okay. I think there's a have and a have-nots. Value and convenience is winning. And basically, if you are not having something innovative, yeah. you're not going to drive the traffic. I, I saw the other day uh, an esteemed luxury brand, 60% off five days before Christmas or whatever. What do they do on the 26th and forward into about January 5? If they're 60% off now, how much do they go off in the next 10 days? I mean, 60% off typically is the most it's going to go. They'll move the merchandise or else it'll get sold to some of the off-pricers. But the other key thing is what some of the retailers do that is a smart thing. They bring in new merchandise. You have to bring in fresh goods in order to attract the consumer. It can't be a deal a day every day in order to generate your profitable margins. So, Dana, what are people buying this shopping season? I mean, Tom just has got, I think he bought 12 AirPods or something to, for his list. But what are most people buying? That's what they're buying. Those AirPods are some of the most popular items out there. Some TVs are very popular also. And everything active, check out those sneakers. And this is a boot season also where boots are doing very well too. Like the Celine Fulco over-the-knee boot in calfskin, $1,950 from Celine. Must have. And it's a must have. And yeah, believe me, someone was watching you, Dana, with me earlier, and she emailed in and said, dear, on the way home, uh, <laughs> pick up those Celines. How do these brands still do it? I mean, some brands are sinking. I mean, you know the bankruptcies to come, uh, Dana, and that. How does someone like Celine have such a good year? I think some of the things they do, it's coming out with new designs, new styles on a regular basis, and basically being in the press and being on social media that makes yeah. people want to be part of that club. Instagram's, social media is important. Yeah. Instagram's changed everything. How do the, the, the department stores adapt to the reality of Instagram? They need to offer service. You need to be able to have service to marry the activity of buying with the activity of doing. It's interesting, Dana. What I've noticed, you know, just following the earnings of some of the big retailer, big box retailers, whether it's a Walmart or Target, is every quarter I look at their digital uh, uh, sales numbers and they're eye-popping, you know, 20, 30, 40% kind of growth in e-commerce from some of these big companies. It, to me, I'm just a, a lay person looking at the retail space, but it seems like they figured out how to compete against Amazon. I think that is what's happening. I think when you think about some of these digital numbers and you're marrying it with retail stores also, I think one of the, the themes of holiday season 2009 is going to be buy online, yeah. pick up, and store worked. That's omni-channel, Tom. Oh, that's, um, that's, like, that's uh, omni-channel. Okay, I'm, I'm learning. Dana, you wrote a piece two days ago, I'll say, that was absolutely exquisite on what I know everyone is talking about, which is the piles and piles of cardboard boxes. Can Amazon, first of all, can Amazon be successful with one day shipping? I think they're going to be. I think Amazon continues to push the needle on speed. And speed basically means everything because it can allow you to gain yeah. share. And I think we're going to continue to see retailers enhance their speed models. What do they do about the expense? I believe you have in your lead paragraph shipping up 8 to 10%. That crushes retail margins. Do they pass that on to the customer? How does that work? I think some of it does come in the form of, the co of cost. I think some of it comes in, in the form of service. And I think some of it is just lower margins. It is expensive to offer all of these services. It doesn't come for free.
Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Dana. I mean, if if I'm not a Walmart, if I'm not a Target, how do I compete against the digital aspect of it all? I can't invest, can I? Well, I think there are some elements where you can. I think some of these companies overall, if you're not a Walmart or you're not a Target, take a look at the off-pricers. That treasure hunt experience is a reason why their traffic is up all the time. Take a look at luxury brands. You can only get them at those luxury stores. Or take a look at Lululemon. Basically, the identifier of that brand, if it's unique and differentiated, the consumer will come. Well, we're unique and differentiated in that we're just two guys talking retail with Dana Telsey. So to fix that, joining us now, the star of Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Masser. Wait, with did Dana we just go Telsey, back to the 1950s? Because it's only women who could talk about <laughs> shopping time? Well, no, I'm out of questions. What do you think I, I am? I thought you were much Chen? more enlightened. No, I, I am enlightened. We've been talking to Celine Boot for $2,000. Mrs. Keene has noted that. Celine is, Boot, is, well, in my dreams. Carol, a question, please, for Dana Telsey. Dana Telsey, uh, the retail, ins- you know, it's funny. I was looking at some of the best performing and worst performing stocks of the S&P 500 for the year last year. Target is near the top. And May- Macy's yeah. is at the bottom. <laughs> well said. So, like, how do you reconcile the retailers who figured it out and those who haven't? I think one of the things that we've seen Target and Brian Cornell do at Target that's been pr- pretty amazing and basically has worked, the service aspect Look at, the, look at the look of the stores. They've gotten cleaner. Look at the exclusive brands that's come in where basically he's changing up the brands on a regular basis. And look at the categories, too. It goes from electronics to cosmetics to apparel to food. He really has taken that whole business model and turned it upside down and came out yeah. with something that's new and exciting. Dana and Carol, and also, I'm, I, and, and Dana, you mentioned this earlier on my other property the whole makeup thing. I mean, Carol, you're living this in real time with various offsprings. You know, Tom Keene, literally, I Are just you? came down the escalator, Dana. Yeah. I'm like here with my bags. And he's like, come yeah. into the studio, come into the studio. <laughs> but I have to say the makeup ca- category, the like creams and lotions, look at Sephora, look at look at Ulta. Yeah. Ulta is constantly uh, on the most active okay. or the biggest Who's movers. the target, Dana Telsey? Who is the target of the makeup category? Mm-hmm. It's Ulta and Sephora that are doing it. Ulta out of the mall, Sephora in the mall. And basically the reason why, they have their, they have makeup applications there, and it's yeah. a community. People basically get excited when they say, that looks good on you, or no, this is the color for right. you. It's, it's interacting, and that's what's driving the bus. Yeah, I like Paul Color 106, Tacey Hazel. This is the Gucci Rouge <laughs> Alevra Matte Lipstick, $42. $42. You have after, to have it, Tom. Afterthought it's the holidays. has it. Dana, save us, because can you believe these two guys are talking lipstick? Hey. You know what? You never know, right? There's going to be male makeup, too, <laughs> the, the, but everyone wants to take care of their skin. With your heritage, Dana, with Bergdorf, do they make money in the basement? You go down there to the most dangerous basement in the world. What per square foot do they make in the basement of Bergdorf on makeup? Cosmetics is very high margin. There's a reason why there's always called the lipstick indicator. When recessions come, women will always buy lipstick. It's profitable and yeah. it adds a dash of newness. Well, there's a boom now. What's the newness now for Ms. Masser as she considers getting to the holidays? I mean, is it the, is it the facelift? Uh, the face mask. No, the face mask thing. Did They're you mean doing... something by looking at me and saying facelift? <laughs> no, no, I was looking at Paul. Tom, you, looking at my, me. No. you were one of my favorite but people. everybody's walking around the house with face mask on. Is that like the next thing, Dana? Don't you know the new look is all about natural? And it takes a lot of work to look natural, but natural is where it's at right now. You tell him, Dana. Dana Telsey, <laughs> exactly. thank you so much for being with us. Merry Thrilled Christmas. that you're with us.
we are thrilled to bring in now a gentleman who put a book out a few years ago that was a must-must read when markets collide. And within his work for the industry, his work at PIMCO and Allianz, and of course, his service to Cambridge, which comes up in late 2020, it is rare that you not only deliver when markets collide, but a second book as well, The Only Game in Town. Dr. Larian joins us now. Mohammed, I know you're working on a new edition of The Only Game in Town. What will be new in the, in the game in this town? Um, good morning, Tom, and thanks for having me, and happy holidays to you and, and all our listeners. Um, what's going to be new is that since I published the book in January 2016, people have understood the issue. They've understood that there are costs and risks of excessive reliance on central banks. And now we have a list of things that have become clear, but we have a list of other things that have become even more murky. And the conversation is starting to lose sight of the fact that Mm -hmm. we can get out of this mess, but we need to do it quickly. One of my conversations of the year was with great courage. David Folkert's Landau of Deutsche Bank took a stand against negative interest rates with all the complexities of his executive abilities at Deutsche Bank and that. Do you agree with Folkert's Landau that the experiment is done? So I think the experiment is done. I think the experiment was done um, a few years ago. That's why I wrote the book. But getting out of the experiment is not in the hands of central banks. That's what people lose sight of. In order to normalize monetary policy, you need a policy handoff from excessive reliance on central banks to a comprehensive pro-growth approach. And that means governments, it means politics, and we're simply not seeing it, which is why... No, I don't mean to interrupt, Dr. Lamb, but this is so important. Under the Hixie and ISLM framework, you're saying move it over from the monetary game to the real economy game. Does that include fiscal policy, or are you suggesting it's strictly a policy opportunity? So for a very small handful of countries, very small, um, it, it means fiscal opportunity. For the rest, it means focusing on the drivers of productivity, on structural reforms, on infrastructure, on labor retraining, on labor retooling. There is so much to do. And if you look for the last 20 years, with the exception of Germany, nothing has been done in the advanced world. We've relied on finance, first on private finance, and then on central banks. And we've lost sight of what drives productivity and growth. So we need to pivot back. But I'm not too optimistic, because that means politicians, and it means that they have to get their act together. And Mohammed, talking about getting their act together, I'm thinking about Germany, <clears throat> and that's kind of, you know, I mean, think about negative interest rates in the industrial world, certainly think about Germany. They have shown no signs, I guess from a political point, to go to your point, of thinking about fiscal stimulus. What has to change? What do you think realistically can happen to push it out? So if, if you are in Germany and everybody is lecturing you for fiscal stimulus, you really are baffled. Because on the one hand, your service industry is doing fine. Second, yes, your manufacturing sector is not doing great, but that has little to do with demand. It has to do with trade, and it has to do with the auto sector. So you keep on scratching your head and saying, wait a minute, why is everybody asking me to sacrifice my fiscal side if they're not doing more? So I, you know, this notion, we fell in love at one stage, we the marketplace with this notion that right. Germany was going to implement. It's not going to happen. They may do something small. 
So the answer to that is, is unfortunately um, more complicated, is that Germany has to be part of a regional effort to get fiscal integration going. That's, that's the answer. That is what the engineers will tell you. But the politicians will say, hey, no, not now. If you're just joining us worldwide in coast to coast, Mohammed Alarian with us, of course, writing for Bloomberg Opinion uh, and with Allianz and, of course, moving to Queens College at Cambridge. Are you going to be a tough grader at Queens College? <laughs> what are you going to do at Cambridge? I mean, are you going to teach a course? Well, what you've missed, Tom, is I've been teaching a course this semester at Wharton, and it's been the most enjoyable thing. You want to learn something, go go talk to 70, 25, 26-year-olds, and you will learn so much from them. It's been an incredible joy and very stimulating. What are you telling them about the new actual assumption? I mean, the reality here, and this is MBA speak, folks, but the bottom line is the actual assumptions come screaming down. Bill Gross talks about financial repression. It's here for retirees. What do you tell them about what your new normal is? I mean, is it 3% actual assumption? Is that where we're heading? So I take that as an example of you, people sitting in the room, are going to have to make decisions under radical uncertainty, under unusual uncertainty. There's lots of things that were unthinkable that have become reality, and they are changing the way the system works. And that is the biggest challenge you're going to face in your business career. And then what I do is I give them tools. I don't give them the answer because I don't know what the answer is, but I give them tools to help them figure out how to get to an answer in the particular circumstances. Interesting, Mohammed. If I were, you know, thinking about that, Tom talks about the actuarial assumptions. It's it's what I tell my kids: max out on your four hundred one k from day one. But Mohammed, so as we think about the world going forward, are you in that camp that is essentially, you know, again going to Tom's assumption issue, kind of lower growth for longer? I am lower growth for longer if, and it's a big if, okay, capital I, capital F, if, if policymakers don't step up to their policy responsibilities. Um, I worry. There's two really big unknown unknowns. Tom was talking about this. I don't know what the answer is, and the marketplace has to deal with short-term constructive outlook with a longer-term uncertainty. I don't know how much damage we've created to the market-based system with negative oh. rates. I don't know whether we are going to deglobalize for a number of years or not. And I don't think anybody knows. These are big unknowns, and the key issue is to build resilience. I'll go with resilience. And, Mohammed, if we could speak of your time at Harvard and, you know, the pluses and the minuses of actually managing real money, how should our listeners position their $42,300 or their $42,300,000, how should they position that after this great bull market if they don't know the amplitudes of some of these shocks to come? And that is the challenge. So, so the proposition that you're trying to implement is to keep a claim on the upside while having more protection against the downside. Exactly. If you're if you're a professional investor, and that's what we did at Harvard when I was there, you can do some tail hedging. You can do various things that are very low cost in this environment because volatility has collapsed. If, however, you're a retail investor, it gets trickier. Um, a retail investor doesn't have as many options as a professional investor does. So you've got to focus on things that mm -hmm. matter. Balance sheet matter. 
cash generations matter. Being higher up in quality in credit terms matter. And you've just got to remember you want to maintain a claim on the upside, but increasingly protect against the downside. In the time we've got left with you, Dr. Larian, I was cornered this weekend by a, a wonderful listener who acclaimed to me of his latest trip to Egypt. And he just said, it was a complete success, and the tourism that is so vital to your Egypt as well. Give us an update on what Egypt needs to do forward. Mr. El-Sisi and the others, all the controversy. How does Egypt find a better decade? So economically, they need to build on the success of the last few years to produce more inclusive and higher growth. they having higher growth. It needs to be more inclusive. The success is reserves are no longer an issue. They're at record levels. Inflation has come down dramatically. And as you said, tourism has come back and has come back in size. So now you need to pivot in order to make sure that the growth that is produced is more inclusive. And that's about second generation reforms. Um, It's not, you know, something we don't know about. It just requires a lot of hard work at the micro level. How alone do you perceive Egypt to be, given the challenges of Mr. Erdogan in Turkey? He had a vision, a foreign policy, a foreign projection, a Middle East projection of seven, eight, nine years ago that was to be to take ownership in the future of the Eastern Mediterranean. That's evaporated, hasn't it? How alone is Egypt in its, its destiny here, and how can the United States help? So Egypt has been focusing much more on on its own issues than taking a regional view that Turkey took and others have. Um, You know, it has good allies in the region, has a very good relationship with the U.S. And I think what Egypt is trying to do is to get its house in order, and it has been doing so. Dr. Alarian, thank you so much. Mohamed Alarian, folks, and we await the new edition of The Only Game in Town. Greatly appreciate it. to continue with Michael Darda of MKM Partners. Michael, I've been in all cash. That worked out. (laughs) There was a photo out in the social space today of you at the Darda rocket ship with your three Bloomberg logins and your various dogs assembled and, and all that. Are you long the market now and how do you position yourself into next year? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I, I think the investor should be diversified and maybe tactically cautious here. If we just rewind the clock exactly one year ago, we were in a situation where the S&P 500 had dropped almost 20% at the end of last year. And even though it was uncomfortable, uh, the view was you really want to be long risk here. Our opinion was 2019 recession, probably unlikely, yet the market has almost priced in such a scenario. So today, you know, with these huge gains that we've had this year, it's just the opposite. You know, valuations have have moved up a lot. The market's had a phenomenal year. And markets do not go straight up. Um, So, you know, probably we're looking at some kind of a pullback or dislocation in the not-too-distant 
future. Uh, a lot of optimism out there right now about a second half acceleration in 2020 about this trade deal essentially all being signed, sealed, and delivered. But, you know, that may not turn out to be the case. So from a shorter term slash tactical perspective, I think a little bit of caution is probably justified here. So, Michael, earlier in the program, Tom and I were talking about whether we sense fear or greed in the marketplace. And my suggestion was I, I kind of felt like it was cautiously optimistic, no real sense of greed in the marketplace that we've sensed in other parts of this bull market. As you talk to your clients as they enter 2020, fear or greed, what are you hearing most or feeling most? Well, I'd say I'd replace uh, greed with optimism. Um, you know, I think uh, most of the institutional money managers we interact with are pretty optimistic that we've soft landed, you know, that growth isn't going to be booming, but it'll be positive next year, that the trade deal is done. And so they see further upside, but, you know, maybe not at the same pace that we enjoyed this year. So given where we are, Michael, uh, you know, in the economic cycle, in this bull market, uh, given the price performance that we've seen in 2019, as you go into 2020, are there sectors of the market you like more than the others? Yeah, thanks for that question. Absolutely. So if we just break it down in terms of the 10 major sectors of the S&P 500 and look at the valuations relative to their own history, very interesting. So we had an underperformance by the healthcare sector this year for various reasons, obviously, some of which attributed to fears of um, you know, policy changes with the rise of Elizabeth Warren and concerns that Medicare for all and other changes might hurt the sector's profitability. So healthcare underperformed this year. The valuations on a forward basis running about 13, 14% um, below you know, where healthcare tends to trade historically. On the other end of the spectrum, consumer discretionary, very strong this year, but the valuations almost 20% above um, its own history. So our view for next year would be, um, why not take a look at a sector that's not so tied to the economy, that's al that also offers attractive valuations. Healthcare would also fit uh, into a bucket uh, that you know that's shaping up better technically. Uh, J.C. O'Hara, who's our technical strategist that you guys have on a lot, likes healthcare from a technical perspective. I like it from a fundamental perspective, mm -hmm. and I like it from a business cycle risk perspective. Right. If there is a downturn next year, then these high-flying cyclical equity sectors are probably not going to be uh, the place to be. Is that is energy a value tap? It might be, Tom. It's interesting. I mean, it screens quite well, not quite as well as healthcare on a valuation basis. I mean, the valuations are below, um, you know, their own history. But in an environment where the global economy doesn't turn, then you know, you're going to still have headwinds there. I'd be more comfortable with energy, perhaps, than some of the other cyclical sectors, just simply because the valuations are are lower. But it's a very relevant question. Uh, how much is this? This will go to our next section with Michael Darda. But how much of this, Michael, do you link into Fed policy? The zeitgeist right now is this is the Powell bull market. Is it? Yeah, I think so, because, you know, what tends to happen when growth is accelerating and you move into a decelerating pattern is you get an equity market correction. We had, you know, two big ones last year. And if you're soft landing, you know, if it looks like Goldilocks, then valuations go back up, and that's exactly what's happened. So, so far, 
so far, it looks like the Fed has pulled a rabbit out of the hat, if you will, with monetary policy, and they've done just enough to keep the economy going at a steady keel, and then you'd be justified in, you know, in stock prices going back up to record highs. But just keep in mind that we had a four-month yield curve inversion this year. It's reversed now, but we had the yield curve inverted, tens to bills, for four consecutive months. Historically, that's been a 12-month forward recession indicator. So the consensus seems to believe we're out of the woods on recession risk. Mm -hmm. But the last three times we had yield curve inversions, recessions hit between 8 and 16 months later. We're only six months out of the initial inversion at this moment in time. So maybe we're getting a bit over our skis here in terms of optimism on the business cycle. Hey, Michael, this is obviously 2020 is a presidential election year. Historically, how have markets reacted during an election period? You know, I don't put a ton of stock into that. Others have seen certain patterns, but I think it really comes down to, you know, the fundamentals. How much tightening did the Fed do in the past? You know, yeah. Did you move into an inverted yield curve environment? You know, how are credit markets responding? And so as of now, you know, a lot of the indicators look like they're telling a soft right. landing story. Um, but I really think the first half of next year is going to be critical in terms of how some of these shorter term leading indicators hold up, like job claims and temporary help, employment, confidence, yeah. you know, if they hold up through the first half, then I think it's, you know, looks it's looking much better for a soft land. But it's too soon at this point to make that judgment. This has been great. Michael Darda, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with MKM Partners uh, this morning. Very generous uh, with his time. We're thrilled to have David Kotak with us with Cumberland Advisors. David, I just randomly picked off the map the 20-year piece of Sarasota. This is a small city in Florida enjoying a 4% coupon. The yield at the moment is 2.4%, priced at 111. I'm up 11% on this dog this year. <laughs> so I got 11 plus 4. I got a 15% total return on a muni bond you live eat and breathe muni bonds are they priced to perfection <laughs> hi tom merry christmas and to you and to paul and may i add rich truman and tanya chin who are such a pleasure yeah, okay. to work with <laughs> and all four of you can come down to the old dog sarasota on a 15 percent total return on the muni bond and we would be happy to entertain you it's remarkable it's remarkable. I mean, it's been historic. As Michael Holland said earlier, six of the last 25 years have been like this. What do you do if you're clipping triple tax free coupons and you're up 15% in one year? Well, the first thing you do is uncork the bottle of champagne. But when you finish it and come back to your senses, you say this cannot repeat itself. And in our portfolio strategies. We have a barbell. A barbell means you have some of the kinds of bonds you've described, oh. and you have shorter maturities, which is where you have the safety net. And as the bond market goes through yeah. this uh, terrific increase, you move from the successful piece and add to the barbell defensive piece 
because that's the only way you'll have money available to redeploy sometime yeah. in the future. Yeah, I, I, Paul, I just, my ears are going here at the end of the year. I thought he said barbell. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that might be barbell. Well, sometimes they go together. They, they go together. Sometimes right? they do. <laughs> Tom, I tell you, when I read David Kotok's research, I always, always, always learn something new. Here's my nugget from today's. Uh, Sweden's Riksbank. Did you know that this was the world's first central bank? It opened its doors in 1668. David was there. <laughs> David was there. <laughs> David, that brings me to my point here. I mean, we don't have to talk about negative interest rates per se, because I'm not really sure how to figure that one out. But are you in the camp that says we are in a lower for longer rate environment? Uh, I'm not there. I think negative interest rates are at a peak, and the peak was at a, about $17 trillion total worldwide debt specified in a negative interest rate by market-based prices. And that was in the summer. That number is down to 12. Uh, thank you for the compliment about the research on Sweden. Sweden is back up to zero and the rest of Europe is under discussion. Uh, Christine Lagarde uh, uh, has, has phrased in a nuanced way, we're going to do a full review this year. And the reason has to be negative interest rates have been so damaging. Now, what the review is going to say, when it will be completed, how they're going to move to it, and how they do it, when the staff of the ECB is part of the review process, and they're the folks that created the mess. David, to get to our our next block, which I really want to focus on equity market and stock ownership, we we, we have such a narrow market, 6, 8, 10, 12 stocks. Everybody owns them. Everybody loves them. Or they're not in the market. Can you acquire shares of something like Apple today? And I'm just picking that, folks, as one of the – representative stocks. I mean, what do you do with these one-story blue chips that have gone up, up, and up? It's remarkable. Um, We uh, use ETFs, as you know, and in the ETF strategies, in the last few days, we've had three rounds of selling, and we have raised cash, and as we sit here today in our U.S. exchange-traded fund Mm -hmm. portfolio today, we are 20% in cash. Wow. So you and only got 80% to go to get to where I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, the rest is in a mix, and that mix has overweight characteristics in healthcare and in defense. And for good reasons, justified by the defense budget, by the complexities of the world, geopolitical risk. And healthcare is the insulated sector, 18% of the U.S. GDP. We own three ETFs to get to the space. And that is domestic U.S. It has insular qualities against trade war effects. And the rest of the world wants to buy American healthcare results, whether it's in biotech, it's a cure, whatever it happens to be. So that's how we've repositioned now, here. David Kotak with us, a couple of advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.